If you want to turn to Acts chapter 4, we're going to end up in Acts chapter 10 for the most part. The reason I'm having this turn to Acts 4, there's something I want to talk about before we actually get into Acts chapter 10. The title of the message today is going to be The Sovereignty of God and Man's Responsibility in Evangelism. That's what I want to talk about, and we'll see that in Acts 10. I'm going to use this board a little bit, if I can, today. So there is two sides of a mountain. So I heard a man say how this worked one time. I thought this was good, and it kind of helps to see it. We hear that God is sovereign. And so we know he's in control of every event that happens in this world from beginning to end, the good and the evil. He is in total control. So that is one truth that we know, but the Bible also teaches a a truth that as men make decisions and as they sin or do good, we're responsible for every action. God's controlling every action, but men are responsible for every action that they do. So what that's called, where you have two truths that they seem like they apparently contradict each other, it's an antinomy. Antinomy is the way to say it. I always want to say it wrong, but it's an antinomy, or a better way we would understand it's a paradox. In other words, two things seem like they both could not be true at the same time, but they are. And so God is totally sovereign, controlling all things, but yet man is responsible for his actions, is freely making his actions. And so the cloud at the top is how those two actually work out. It's only God knows. I've heard explanations on it, and some of them are interesting. But really, that's just something that we don't understand. I mean, we have examples of that in the natural world, like light. So we know that light is a wave, but it's also a particle. And they would seem like they both couldn't be true at the same time, yet we know that that is a truth. Two truths that would seem to contradict actually exist. So you're in Acts chapter 4. And we'll see that this has everything to do with evangelism and how God works. We'll see that in a minute here when we get to Acts 10. But here in Acts 4, verses 26 to 28, we see both these truths. God is sovereign and he is in control, and yet man is responsible. So in Acts 4, 26, it says this. It says, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for of a truth against Thy holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So all these people, they are all gathered together, Jews and Gentiles, to do harm to the Lord Jesus Christ, to kill him and put him on the cross. But what are they doing? They're doing what they want to do, but what does it say in verse 28? For to do whatsoever thy hand, that's God, and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done. So it would seem like men are just puppets, but we're not just puppets. And if you'll turn back two chapters to chapter 2, we'll see the same thing, where men are doing what God wants them to do, but yet they are accused of being wicked. So if you're just a mere puppet on a string, how could you be accused of being wicked? And so in 2.23 it says this, him, meaning Jesus, was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God has said before this earth was ever created that Jesus Christ would be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He determined that would happen, but yet the ones that did what he had determined from all eternity to happen, what does it say about them? It says, you, Peter's pointing the finger to them, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
See, he's saying, you're the guilty ones. You will be judged for that. You're not going to be able to say, God was controlling me. I couldn't help myself. Oh, no, they did what they wanted to do. But God had them do what he wanted to do. So we have both of these taking place right here. Men are responsible for their actions, but God is in sovereign control over every event, small or big, a grain of sand moving on the ocean. He's in control of everything. Nothing's out of his control. And so bringing that home to salvation, we have these scriptures here that you would know. Salvation is of God. Salvation, it says in Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. He is totally sovereign on who is saved and who is not saved. And we have these verses that we know. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. No one would be saved if God Almighty didn't reach in. Election means you reach down and you select out of a group something in particular. That's what the word election means. And so he reached down in sinful humanity and he's plucked through the thousands and centuries and generations. He's plucked certain people out. That's what's happened. Acts 13, 48 says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So God ordains who will believe. He selects. He elects. Romans chapter 9, right? But we have a responsibility, don't we, in that. In other words, we have to believe and we have to repent. Because if we don't, you'll never make it in. And so we have these verses, Acts 2, 37 to 38. Now, when they heard this, this message of Peter, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And there's some groups, these hyper-Calvinists, will be like, you don't have to do anything. If God saved you, you'll believe. But no, that's not what Peter told them. What should we do? His answer was, Peter said unto them, repent. They have to choose to turn from their sins. We're not puppets. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And John 3.16 says, so God so loved the world that he gave, he initiated it, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would what? Believe in him, that whosoever has to believe. And Jesus told the people in Luke 13.3, he says, nay, I tell you, but except you repent you will likewise perish. If you don't repent, you'll never make it in. That's the way it is. And it's all summed up where we see both sides of that coin. It's the same coin, and there's two sides of it, this mountain. In Philippians 2, and it's another verse that we're very familiar with, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Wherefore, he says, because of that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He tells us we have a responsibility. We know this. He says to do what? Work out your own salvation. And how are we to do it? With fear and trembling. But it's not us working on our own or in our own strength or in our own power or in, even in our own initiative. Because he goes on to say, for it is God which works in you both to will to even want to do what's right, to even want to do his will, God has got to initiate that in us. God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we're going to see tonight that that is the way things work in evangelism. You want to see your loved ones safe? It's not just you just leave it in God's hands. We're going to see two things when we read Acts chapter 10. So if you would turn over there now. 
Actually, we want to start in Acts chapter 9 and catch the very last part of that. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, and work our way through chapter 10. It says, And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all the quarters, he came down unto the saints which dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Ananias, which kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Ananias, Jesus Christ makes you whole. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saran saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which was by interpretation called Dorcas. And this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. Now this sets up what happens here in chapter 10. And there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thy alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. And he lodged with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell thee what you ought to do. And when the angel which spoke unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, and he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it been a great sheet knit at the four corners and lit down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him the second time, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. And while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause whereof you are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, 
and one that fears God, and of a good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house, and to hear words of thee. And then called he them in, and lodged them, and on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow, after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I am a man also like thyself. And he talked with him, he went in, and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come in unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for. I asked, therefore, for what intent have you sent me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who, when he comes, he will speak unto thee. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all the things that are commanded thee of God. And then Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even unto us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive forgiveness of sins. And while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So, it's quite a bit of reading there. But, what we have going on in Acts chapter 9, the word of God has spread from Jerusalem and Judea and has now gone out into Samaria. And Peter and John, remember from last time, they went down and prayed for those Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit. And so churches began to be established in that area. And so what we have going into Acts 9, into Acts chapter 10 is Peter is going around to these people, these churches, and seeing how they're doing. So the one place he goes is Lydia. This is all on the western side of Israel. So he goes to Lydda, and there he finds that person that is crippled, and he prays for him and is healed. 
And then he gets word, they hear that he's there, and they want him to come to Joppa. Well, Peter doesn't think of himself as a rock star uh, apostle, like it's beneath him. So he walks the 10 miles from Lydda to Joppa. And we'll see later in the story, to go to Cornelius, he had to walk another 30 miles from Joppa, which was on the coast, clear up to another coastal town called Caesarea, which was basically Rome's capital. That's where all the big shots of Rome hang out, mostly a Gentile city. What I want to look at, just a few things in Acts 9 before we move into Acts 10. And we look in verse 36, and we see one thing there that we all should know, and that is, number, the first thing is, a certain disciple named Tabitha. And some people, maybe if you're young in the Lord, you don't know, all of us are disciples. It's not just the 12 apostles. So every Christian is a disciple. So the words the disciples are to all of us. But we also see there that she did good deeds, good works in verse 36, and alms deeds. And they are blessed by God. It says, God is not unrighteous or unjust to forget your good works that you have done. And he's remembered this lady's good works here. So like we said, Peter humbly walked that 10 miles, didn't consider himself a rock star. But he gets there and he goes up. And kneels beside that bed, and he doesn't just think, hey, I've got all this power. God gave me all this power. I can do what he wants to. What does he do? He has to kneel beside that bed because he doesn't know what the Lord's will is, does he? He can't just assume that. So he kneels beside that bed, and who else do we know did that? In the Old Testament, Elijah did the same thing when he came across a dead person to see what God's will is. And so when he understands that it's God's will, it says he turns to that woman and what does he say? Tabitha, arise. The same thing Jesus said. So here Jesus had all the disciples, the apostles with him for those three years to learn how to do ministry. And so he's learned from Elijah and he's learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why those stories in the Gospels are there for us. They're to teach us how to do ministry like him. The works that I do, he says, you shall do also. I mean, let's at least leave it at that. We can do his works if we want to leave off the greater works. But here we have an illustration, an example of how that works out. And so we also, another critical thing here, he raises that dead woman and heals that man that was crippled. And here's an important thing we need to understand is to say we don't need miracles today and to say it's no big deal if we have miracles to go along with what our church stands for or what the message we preach is, look in verse 935. What happened as a result of that crippled man being healed? And it says, all that dwelt at Lydda and Saran, they saw this man. It was a public miracle. They all knew what shape he was in. And what does it say happened? And turned to the Lord. So we've got people believing for healings that are obvious, right? And everyone in the community knows about it. And we press in and see God perform that miracle. We want revival here. We want people to come to the Lord. We want to be a witness in our community. That is one way right there. Because it also is down in verse 42. It says, after he raised that dead woman and people knew about it, what does it say in verse 42? The same thing. It was known throughout all Joppa. And what happened as a result of what they knew? Many believed in the Lord. So, hey, we know miracles don't produce faith, do they? But miracles confirm the word that was preached, that Jesus is Lord of all. And it's essential that we, we're spirit -filled, a spirit-filled church. 
We should be believing for these things to happen and not be content when they're not. Amen? <laughs> See, people are nodding their heads. That's good. But that's the way it should be. So we end up here at the end of chapter 9. So he's made all these journeys. And look, in verse 43, it says, It came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. And we're going to see that's significant that he would stay at this guy's house, Simon a tanner, because he was considered an unclean Jew. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want to see here is the first thing I want to look at. There's two main things I want to look at in this Acts chapter 10. And the first is there are people who believe that God is going to sovereignly save whoever he will, and he doesn't need our help. Now, there's a lot of people that believe that, and so they don't have much incentive to go out and evangelize if that's the way you look at things. He's got his elect, and he'll save them, and he will. And so they say, well, what's the point in evangelizing? <laughs> if he's going to save all that he will. So look, we have here in Acts 10, 1 to 6 again, it says, There was a certain man of Caesarea of the centurion band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms and so forth. And he saw in a vision... Evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel coming to him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God, and now send. Why didn't this angel proclaim the gospel to this man? You don't think he knew it? I think the angel knew the gospel. But yet, what does he say? You send men to Joppa. And call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with this Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside, and what will happen when, when Simon gets there? He said, he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. So if Simon didn't get there, he wouldn't know, because the angel didn't tell him, because God has ordained us to proclaim his word in the gospel, not angels. And look in verse 22, what does it say there? And they said, Cornelius and Centurion, a just man and one that fears God and of a good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to do what? To send for thee unto his house. And to do what did he need to do? He says he needed to hear words from you, Simon, Peter. You've got these words, and only you. We see that, and then look over in verses 34 and 35. Peter gets there and starts to speak to him. And then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. And so here is the crux of the issue right here, of what I'm talking about. Is there are those that say Cornelius was already accepted by God. It says because he, anyone that fears God and does righteousness... Cornelius was already accepted. In other words, they would say he was already saved. And when Peter preached that message to him, all he did was confirm him in the salvation he already had. And so that raises two questions I want to deal with here. And the first one is this. And you will be asked this if you haven't been asked it already. Is Jesus the only Savior? And the second question you got to answer is faith in the name of Jesus required. Now you think, oh, I already know the answer to that. Well, I don't know, not so fast. You probably do, I would think. Well, listen, there's three positions 
I don't mean to make this too academic, but I'm going to make it a little academic, all right? So there's three positions that answer that question. And here's the first position, religious pluralism. That's a big sounding word for all it means is all Romes lead to Rome. <laughs> I could have put that for my answer up there. But that's the world. They say every religion is valid. There's many ways to God. So whether you're Muslim, Buddhist, Wicca, we got Wicca in prison, they're devil worshipers. Whatever it is, it's all the same God. And as long as you're following and doing the best you can, you'll make it in. We obviously know that's not right. Right? We don't need to have a lot of instruction on that, right? But then there's the second view. This one is held by a lot of Christians. So no Christians are going to hold into the first one. And that is what's known as inclusivism. Okay, so the reason I wrote those questions up there is they will answer these questions this way. Is Jesus the only Savior? A lot of Christians will say, yes, he is the only Savior. If it wasn't for Jesus dying on the cross, nobody could be saved. But they will answer that second question, no. They will say faith in Jesus Christ is not necessary. Because they'll say God is working in this world by his Holy Spirit. Salvation's only made available because of Jesus. But you don't necessarily have to hear his name or believe in him to be a Christian. Actually, to make it to heaven that a man could just look at creation and be saved. Because let's say, what about all these millions of people on earth that they never hear the gospel? And there are a lot of people on this earth living right now that have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ and maybe never will till the day they die. And that just sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? That those people somehow can't be saved and they're good people and they're nice people. And so one of my favorite theologians <laughs> recommended he's conservative, he's an older Baptist, A.H. Strong. Well, I start finding out he, he believes in this because they know that regeneration happens before a person could be saved. And they'll say, well, it's possible for a person to be regenerated because of what Jesus did on the cross. It never hear the gospel, but yet God has, has saved them. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe that this guy believes that. But let me tell you, that would probably not mean a whole lot to most people in here. They're not reading Augustus H. Strong theology books. But what about Billy Graham? Most people have heard of Billy Graham in here. I would attribute my salvation to Billy Graham. Watched him quite a bit on TV. But listen to this. In 1997, Robert Schuller, out in California, did an interview with Billy Graham. And listen to what he said. And a lot of people believe this, and you'll run into him. Schuller asked him, tell me, what do you think is the future of Christianity? And listen to the answer. Well, Christianity and being a true believer, you know, I think there's the, it's kind of convoluted at first. I think there's the body of Christ. This comes from all the Christian groups around the world, outside the Christian groups. I think everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. I think James answered that, the Apostle James in the First Council in Jerusalem, when he said that God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for his name. And that's what God is doing today. Listen to this. He's calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, or the Christian world, or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have and they turn to the only light they have, and I think they are saved, and that they're going to be with us in heaven. 
Now that sounds good, doesn't it? It shouldn't, but I'm saying good in the sense it kind of makes sense. And Robert Schuller says, what? He couldn't believe. What I hear you saying, that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life, even if they've been born in darkness and never been exposed to the Bible? Is that the correct interpretation of what you're saying? And Dr. Graham answers this, yes, it is, because I believe I've met people in various parts of the world in tribal situations that they have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible or never heard of Jesus, but they believed in their hearts that there was a God, and they've tried to live a life that was quite apart from the surrounding community in which they lived. And I've actually seen this interview. You can watch it on YouTube. And Robert Schuller at this point, because he's a hyper-liberal, is about falling over himself. He can't believe what he's hearing. Because that's not what you would have heard Billy Graham preach years before that. And he says this. He says, I'm so thrilled to hear you say this. And he would be. There's a wideness in God's mercy. And Billy Graham, oh, yes, there definitely is. So do you all know why that's not right? Well, we'll find out. Yeah, we should know. So there's people that say, no, you don't have to have faith in the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to actually hear the gospel. A missionary doesn't have to come. Billy Graham believes that. There's a lot of people that believe that. And the third view, which is the right view, the Bible view, which would be our view, says yes to both questions. Jesus has got to be the only Savior. He's the only one who qualifies to be a Savior. And that's the answer you have to give somebody that is a member of one of these other religions. Well, look, there's only one person that qualifies to be our Savior that can get us into heaven. He had to be virgin conceived. He couldn't be tainted by the blood of mankind, the blood of Adam, like all men. Our Savior, which you can't say of Buddha or Muhammad, he has to be fully divine and fully human. Fully human to stand in our place, fully divine, so that his blood is sufficient for all the sins of the world, so to speak. He has to be sinless. Even the Koran will admit that the Lord Jesus Christ is sinless because it has to be imputed to our account, his sinless life. We have to have that to stand before the Lord righteous. And not just a death, but an atoning death. And the last thing is, he rose from the dead. None of the others did that. That's seven proofs that say he has to be the only Savior. No one else qualifies. And without him, you'll perish, no matter what else you believe. But yes, to answer the second one, Faith in the name of Jesus Christ is required. That's what we're reading here in Acts 10. Cornelius was a good guy. He saw he needed more, but he needed to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and put faith in his name. Listen, Acts 4.12, we should know this. It says, neither is there salvation in any other. That will answer the first question. And the second one, it goes on to say in Acts 4.12, for there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. None other name. That is the only name, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have faith in that name. So maybe this is, everyone knows this. Well, let's just see it again, because it just may be tomorrow you get the witness to somebody that you'll need to know this. So if you would turn over to Romans 10, so you'll run across people in your family, people you'll know at work, that will be like, why do I have to be a Christian? You're going to tell me all the Jews, all the Muslims, all the billions of people that live in these foreign countries, they're all going to perish in hell? So in Romans 10, it says this, beginning in verse 9. He says, 
If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and will believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, then what will happen? You will be saved. That has to happen. Confess the Lord Jesus. Believe in thine heart God raised him from the dead. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture has said, Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they are the only ones. So that's why he goes on to say, this is why we need missionaries. Verse 14, how should they call on him if that's the condition? Well, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear if nobody goes to preach? And that's why Peter was sent. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report? And so we're only saved by faith. You have to hear the report to have faith. And that's why he says in verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So missionaries have to be sent. You have to be sent to your neighbors. You have to be sent to anyone that hasn't heard the gospel. That's our responsibility, isn't it? as a church, and as, a, as Christians in this generation. We have to be the ones to reach this generation. Our neighbors, you're, you're the one that's got your neighbor, not the guy that lived 50 years ago, or the people you work with. God's put you there for a reason, or the people you run across every day. But like we said last week, you've got to be intentional about it. That's your intention. I'm going to share this gospel because this person's soul, you don't know that what you say might... Save that person from an eternal hell. And you can just be around people and never try, never, never have any desire. There's something not right there. But go back to Acts 10. So when we look at Acts 10 and Acts 11, we see pretty clearly there, John Piper gave these four points on what's going on here that you have to hear the message. You have to hear the gospel. And we see that if you look first in Acts 11. Look what it says. Acts 11, 13, and 14 Peter's talking about Cornelius. He showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. And what will happen? He shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house, what will happen? So could he have been saved before Peter ever got there? Without those words? No way. It wasn't just that he was a good person. And then back in Acts 10.43, you kind of go back and forth between 10 and 11, but in Acts 10.43, it says this. Peter, preaching to him, said to him, Jesus, give all the prophets witness that through his name, his name has got to be proclaimed, whoever believes in him shall receive forgiveness of sins. So if they don't hear his name, they can't receive forgiveness of sins. And we already looked at Acts 10.2. So Cornelius it said, was a devout man in Acts 10 to a devout man, it says about him. So does just being devout give you salvation, that you're a devout and pious man? It doesn't, because it says the same thing about the Jews in Acts chapter 2, that they were in Jerusalem. It says there were devout men there, but they still had to hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ from Peter. So just being devout 
fearing God, praying, that does not get you salvation. It may get you some things, but it's not going to get you salvation in and of itself. And then back to Acts 11, this will be the last thing we'll look on this. They had to hear and believe on Jesus to repent unto life, and we'll see it again. Peter's talking to these group back in Jerusalem. He says, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying that has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So how did they get that repentance unto life? They had to hear the gospel, didn't they? So that gets us back, if we're back in Acts 10, the question then becomes, when you look at verses 34 and 35, it says, Peter opened his mouth and said, of truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Well, what does he mean by that, is accepted with him? Well, we've already seen that it doesn't mean because he fears God and does good that that gives him salvation. That's not what that accepted means. And it also, some people will say, well, it means just because he's a Gentile that God said, don't call any man unclean or common. That does, that's not what it's talking about there, that any Gentile should no longer be considered unclean or common, that you should witness to everyone. That's not what the accepted means. What we have here with Cornelius is a person, a kind of unsaved person that is seeking God in an extraordinary way. That's what I think he means by acceptable or accepted. It's a genuine searching after God. God has to initiate it. They're not saved yet, but they have a genuine searching and a heart to know the true God. That's what's going on with Cornelius. He sees something in Israel's God. He's a Roman centurion living in a Gentile city, but he sees what's going on with these Jewish people. He hears the teaching at the synagogue. He gives them money, gives alms to them. He's what's known, they call him God-fears. He's got a respect and a fear of God. He's never become a proselyte, which would involve circumcision and obeying the dietary laws. He's not going to do that. But he has a lot of respect for this religion. He's being drawn to it, and he wants to know more about this God. It's a work God is doing in him. He's sincerely searching for God. And what we're seeing here is, and this has happened, there's countless testimonies of this happening, that when a person is sincere like that, God will bring the gospel to them. He will. I'm going to share one story here, but I've read a bunch of stories where that's happened, where a person sees there is a creator here, and he's seeing that creation, and I'm not living right. Something's not right with me, and crying out for God. And God doesn't send an angel to him. He has to send a person, and that's us. And so if we don't go and share, a person might not hear. So here's this story. It's a true story. This Gadeo people, they're called. They lived in South Central Ethiopia. It was a half a million people. Their business was growing coffee. That's what they did. And so they believed in a supreme God called Magano, the all-powerful creator of all. And they considered him the good God. But very few of them prayed to him because they were afraid of the evil god, Shetan, the god of evil. So they, everything they did, their sacrifices, their prayers, were to appease this evil god. But there was one man, his name was Warasa Wanga, from a town called Dilla there in Ethiopia. And he prayed to this Magano, 
to reveal himself to him. And as he's doing that, one day he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees two white-skinned strangers. They came to that town, and they built these flimsy shelters under the shade of the sycamore tree, this huge sycamore tree that was in Dilla. And as I said, later they came and built more permanent structures that had shiny roofs. And this guy's seeing this vision. He's like, I have never seen houses like this because all their houses had grass roofs. He didn't know what to think about that. And then he hears this voice come in his vision, and it says, These men will bring you a message from Magano, the gods you seek. Wait for them. And in the last scene of his vision, he sees him taking this, his center pole and taking it over and putting it beside the huts that he sees of these two white men that are going to come. And in that culture, when you did that, the center pole represented of a man's house, it represented his very life. So in that vision, the Lord shows him, you will plant your life with these men when they come. And you know when they came? Eight years later. December 1948, two Canadian missionaries, Albert Brandt and Glenn Kane, they came to start a work amongst these Gadeo people. They'd never been reached with the gospel, never heard the gospel. And they asked the government, can we set our camp up right in the middle of this people, this Gadeo people? They said, no. We want you to go to the outskirts, to Dilla. And they set up under the sycamore tree. That's where they set up, just like it was in that vision. You think that didn't pay off? 30 years later, there are more than 200 churches, Christian churches in the Gadeo people, most of them averaging more than 200 members. And one of the first converts was who? Warasa, the one that prayed first converts, and he was the first person to be in prison for his faith. Listen, when a person is sincerely seeking after the Lord, don't discourage him. You really shouldn't do that. You know, when I was a Catholic teenager, honestly, I mean, I was raised Catholic. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about Protestant religions other than what I saw Billy Graham on TV. But I knew something wasn't right. And I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, here's the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church. I'm looking at all these churches. You got the Buddhist and whoever all else. And I asked myself, I remember sitting on my bed as a teenager, and I'm thinking, there's all these people with all these different gods. I mean, I, at least I realize they're not all the same God. And I prayed sincerely to the Lord. I said, they can't all be right. It's impossible because they have different gods. And I realized God can only be one. If he's infinite, if he is what he is, God, you can't have 13 different gods. And I gave a sincere prayer. I said, I don't know who you are. I don't know which one of these religions is right. But I, I said, I'll do whatever you want. Just please lead me in the right paths. And it didn't happen like right away because I messed with this and I messed with that. But I, like I've said here before, when I read my New Testament, I could never get away from the words of Jesus. It was just like when they sent those soldiers to get him. Why didn't you bring him back? Because never a man spake like this man. And that's the way it was for me. I'm reading that Bible, and I'm like, I've read these other things. I tried getting into Chinese meditation, ended up picking up a spirit that way. But all that, but still, I could never get away from, it's the words of Jesus. It's words like I've never seen before. Yeah. And God, here I am today. Praise God. <laughs> Don't discourage. I meet guys in prison all the time. I'll share with them, and they're like, well, I'm just looking now. I'll tell you, I don't sit there and discourage them from that. I'll say, I'll tell you what, if you'll do whatever you're shown and there's no strings attached, I said, God will lead you in the right way. And I'll pray for him that way because he will. 
That's what we have going on here with Cornelius. What do we see from this? That God is sovereign, isn't he? He saves. He's got his elect, and they will be saved. But what else are we seeing? That a message has to be preached to his elect, doesn't it? He's not going to appear himself. He could. He doesn't send an angel. He sends us. That's the way God's ordained it. And that puts a huge responsibility on us, doesn't it? That we can walk through this life thinking we have no responsibility to share the gospel and to show up to church. We have the words of eternal life. We're around sinners, and we just don't care. That doesn't seem right. And so if you'll turn back to Ezekiel 33... We'll see we have a responsibility. It's not just Ezekiel's responsibility here. Ezekiel 33, 1 to 9, it says, And again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he sees the sword come upon the land and he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, and if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. And look at verses 8 and 9. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou shalt deliver thy soul. Amen. Well, that's pretty solemn, isn't it? And that's a responsibility every single person that names the name of Jesus in this room tonight has. We don't warn a sinner of where they're headed and find a way to do it in some way. They'll die in their sins, but it says he'll require his blood from us. And that brings me, let's go back to Acts 10, to the second truth we see in Acts. And that is, we say God sovereignly saves, but how does he sovereignly save? And first of all, I would say he does it through circumstances and supernatural events. So we've got Simon at the end of 943, and it came to pass that he's tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a Tanner. He's got Peter staying there at that Simon the Tanner's house, and that's significant because of who the Tanner was. They were despised by the Jews because they worked with dead animals, and it made them ritually unclean. And Tanners as a group were suspected of immorality, and that's because women were Tanners. They were working together. And the rabbis would say this, woe to him that is a tanner. But yet Peter's staying at his house. And not only that, those dead animals they worked with, they had a nasty odor, and that's why he's by the seaside, so that wind can kind of take that odor on away. People didn't like tanners. So it's uncomfortable. Why is Peter a pious Jew? He's staying at this man's house. Now, Simon's a Jew, but they weren't looked on well by other Jews. And yet God has him staying there. 
and there's a progression going on. So I'm saying God sovereignly saves, he sovereignly uses who he wills, but he uses us by our personality. So him as a Jew, he's like not going to talk to the Samaritans, but where did we just have him going last week in Acts chapter 8? He's going there to the Samaritans, the gospel goes, to those hated people. And Peter would have been hating them up until the time of Jesus. And he said, i got to get my attitude changed. God changed his attitude through the Holy Spirit. They went and prayed for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is like the second step. He's taking him here, this unclean Jew. He's like, no, I want you to stay in this man's house. The Lord had him stay there. And why? I don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe this guy, after seeing <laughs> that dead person raised, he's like, would you please stay with me and my family and let us hear the gospel? And the Lord spoke to him, I guess, and told him to stay there because that's where he was. God had him there and wanted him to be there. So we're saying God works through circumstances. So we got Peter staying in Joppa and up north in Caesarea, 30 miles away. At the same time, he gives Cornelius a vision of an angel and tells him what to do. God sent that vision, right? Send for Peter. And he does that immediately, it says. And the angel says, what you need to do is send men to Joppa. And why? Because God knew Peter was there. He wanted him there. And he tells this man up here, you send men down to Peter in Joppa. God's sovereignly in control at where Peter's at, where this vision's taking place. Right? And he's working at the other end, too, with Peter. Peter is on the roof. What's he doing up on the roof? Because it wasn't the hour of prayer. He's up there because somehow the meal wasn't ready. And he's like, I think, I guess, I'll go upstairs and get deep and pray for a while. So he's up on that roof praying. And he has that vision of the sheet which God sent. I'm saying God is sovereignly in control of everything going on here. And he has that vision when? As the men are approaching his house. It's all taking place. And God has them approach it as that vision's taking place. They're outside the house calling for Peter. Peter, are you there? We know you're here. God told us. And he's having a vision up there about them coming. Look in Acts 10. Look what it says in verses 17 to 20. And now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. And while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Peter has to obey, doesn't he? He's got to do what the Lord's not forcing him to do anything. But God's in control, isn't he? He told Cornelius, this man down there, he will tell you what you need to do. And it'll happen just like God said. You go down there and you will find this man. God has orchestrated everything. But here's the other thing I want us to see, even more significant than just the circumstances. And this is what I want us to understand tonight, is God sovereignly worked how? What was going on during all this time? A lot of praying. He worked through prayer. Because when did Cornelius have that vision of an angel? It says in verses 30 to 32, And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And guess what happened? Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard. 
and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner. So when did that happen? When did he have that vision? He's fasting. Four days he'd been fasting. He had a responsibility. He was meeting there, wasn't he? Of praying and seeking God. And then God sovereignly moved in those circumstances, giving him that vision. And when did Peter have that vision of that sheet going up? When he was up on the housetop doing what? Praying. So God is at work at both ends, isn't he? Up in Caesarea, down here in Joppa, sovereignly working, but also men are meeting their responsibilities, aren't they? They're doing what? Praying. The means he uses is prayer. So you say, I don't really feel like God's doing much in my life. My life as a Christian is pretty boring. And coming to meetings, I'm just not too excited about anything anymore. We've just read a pretty simple solution to that. Pray. And see if things don't liven up for you a little bit. How much do you pray? How much do you pray for God to work in your day, in your circumstances, in the people you meet? How much do we pray about things like that? James 4.2, it's pretty simple. He says, you have not because you ask not. You want to see the book of Acts? Let's do what they do in the book of Acts. They're doing a lot of praying, right? Because the book of Acts, when I read through the book of Acts, it's anything but boring. Thank you for the amen. I do appreciate that. It is anything but boring because God is always at work amongst his people. When you read the book of Acts, but pay special attention. When is he at work amongst his people? When they pray. I mean, we taught that message months back, and I know how that works, but look, the day of Pentecost happened. The spirits poured out. When did that happen? What were they doing? Praying, right? Go through all that. The crippled man healed in Acts chapter 3. You know when he was healed? Peter and John were going to prayer is when it happened. The place is shaken in Acts 4. We talked about that, that building. They had all gathered together and done what? They were praying. And God shook the building. Saul prayed in Acts 9, said it was a sign of the new birth. Behold, he prays. We heard that in that video with Jim Cimbala. And here we've got Cornelius and Peter praying, and we're getting ready to have a revival amongst the Gentiles. We really are. That's what's getting ready to happen. And so I've heard this from people. They think praying is a waste of time to just keep praying about things. It's just a waste of time. <laughs> I shared this at prayer meeting. They've heard it, but everyone else hasn't. But one day, George Mueller decided he was going to pray for five friends he had. And it said after many months, it took months one of them came to the Lord. Ten years later, two more came to the Lord. Now, that's him praying every day for ten years for these guys. Two more come. It took 25 years before the fourth man came to the Lord. And guess what happened? Before the fifth man came to the Lord, George Mueller died. He never gave up his faith that that man would be saved. And shortly after his funeral, after 59 years of praying, that man came to the Lord. Now, if you're going to say George Mueller didn't know how to pray the prayer of faith, I'm sorry. You need to read his books. That guy knew what faith was. Because they're like, what's he praying 59 years for? Shouldn't have had to do Well, he got results. And we can't quit. Because you don't see something happen. You're interceding for something. It's like, man, I've been interceding now for a month or a week or a year, and nothing seems to change. 
You don't know what's getting ready to happen tomorrow. Cornelius, what about that Indian guy that well, we just read about? Eight years it took for that vision to take place. Eight years. I guarantee you he didn't give up. And so I'll tell you, for me, I've got to come back to where I'm either going to believe what people say, that praying is a waste of time, or I'm going to get back to where I'm going to believe what God says. And here's what God says, James 5. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. Or we know it in King James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so when we pray in the spirit and that situation isn't changing and we've got a brother or sister that need healing, does James say pray for one another that you may be healed? And right after that, he says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So which one of your loved ones do you want to see saved? Which one of your children that has gone astray do you want to see brought to the Lord? How much time do we spend in prayer for them? That's the question we have to ask, because if your heart's right, you have to be a righteous man praying God will move <laughs> in their lives. You know, back when I first got saved and got the baptism, this whole thing of Cornelius is praying God working at both ends. Well, it was a Friday night. I believe it was a Friday night. Last thing I'd have been doing a month before that on a Friday night was praying. <laughs> the last thing I'd have been doing. But this particular night, I'm by myself in this apartment I'm, I'm staying in. And God put Greg on my heart. I hadn't seen Greg. Me and Greg were best friends. I hadn't seen him for years. I didn't really know what he was up to. But I'm in there. I just, out of the blue, here's Greg, and I'm praying for him. And all of a sudden, my phone rings. Hello? It's Greg. Wow. He asked me, what are you doing? I wasn't going to say, I was praying for you, Greg. <laughs> I had been here in teaching. <laughs> but, man, I was excited. And we get together. He had gotten right with the Lord. He had gotten saved, backslidden, gotten right with the Lord. He's going to this church where they're trying to say you've got to pay to learn how to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, Greg, you don't have to pay for that. That's ridiculous. You know, God will give it to you for free. They had these classes they wanted you to pray for. But anyways, through all that, that's why he's here now. But I'm saying that's the way God will work. But we, God puts somebody on your heart. You don't know why. We need to pray for him. If it's a sinner at work, if it's whoever, one of your loved ones, we need to press in. And you'll find God's working on both ends of that whole thing. Because you don't know who God can send to your child's path to speak a word or whatever. It may not be you. <laughs> That's the way things work. You know, we had this thing. I hate to keep using myself, but I'm going to here. Just bear with me, all right? I'm just about done. We're saying God works on both ends. So we had Jay share about giving. And the one thing that came out of that when we were at my house was that there's a blessing for the giver and the receiver. And a lot of times you don't know who you're blessing when you pray and God shows you a need. So we shouldn't just pray for God to give us money, but to show us where we should give our money. Because you can really encourage somebody. So I was new in the faith message. I didn't have any money. I was broke. My job didn't pay hardly anything. I wanted a tape player to listen to theology tapes. That's what I wanted to listen to way back when. And I went and looked at one. I thought this is a decent one. It was $100. I didn't have $100. But I'd heard the teaching. You make your request known unto God. So I told the Lord, I said, I'd like to have $100 for this tape player. And I didn't tell anybody else about it. Two weeks later, this is how God will encourage you if you just got saved, if you just step out as a young person to trust him or anyone. Two weeks later, a brother from church comes, and he had a good job. 
But he said, I was praying and asking the Lord to show me what needs I could met. And he laid it on my heart and he handed me $100 exactly. I mean, man, I was on cloud nine. I didn't care about the money. I just cared that God was working in my life in that way and answering my prayers. I'm saying, when you trust him, whether it's healing, finances, and you see that your faith works and God loves you and will bless you, man, it, you'll be on cloud nine. Better than anything else you'll experience. But we got to do that versus letting your needs be known or going the other route. You don't experience God's blessing that way. You don't see God's hand when you look to man for help. But that's what he wants to do. And that's what he did here with Peter and Cornelius. And that's what he'll do with us. As both are seeking God, God sovereignly fulfills his purposes. And so as you pray and you're praying for your loved one or someone at work, or God may put someone on your heart. You're like, I've never witnessed to them in a million years. I can't stand them. And you find as you share with them something, maybe they open up to you and say, and this has happened a lot, to where, man, I've been wondering about that. I've been wondering. I've just never talked to anybody. Because when I was a heathen, I never talked to people about finding God and going to heaven and repenting of my sins. But I thought about it. But I wasn't going to talk to my buddies about that. And so you may be that person. Like Peter was with Cornelius. He would have wanted nothing to do with Cornelius. God had to give him that vision three times to break down those barriers. But hey, God sends you to that person, and man, you find out God's already been working on them. And you'll get the privilege and the blessing of bringing somebody to the Lord. But if we don't seek the Lord, guess what? We don't seek the Lord in prayer, none of that stuff happens, does it? So in conclusion, God's sovereign. He had prophesied that the Gentiles would come clear back in the days of Abraham. He said, through you, all the people of the earth shall be blessed. And he's got an elect people. And they're still out there today. An elect people that he from all eternity has ordained that they will be saved. But it's the one side of the mountain, God's sovereignty, right? They will be saved. His elect, you're not going to add any or subtract any to that from all eternity. But that doesn't take away from our responsibility, does it? Because we just read it in Ezekiel. We are God's watchmen. The gospel must be preached. Salvation in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and why he needs to be the Savior has to be clearly explained to people so they can know that. And so maybe you've got some fears to overcome and some prejudices against people. And that's what God will do. That's what he did with Simon dealt with him about all that and just moved him through and dealt with his prejudices and fear. And how did God change him, though? Through prayer. Through his prayer and through his word. So we have a part to play in God's plan, don't we? And through prayer, because listen here, we know this one. Therefore, Jesus said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Luke 10. So what do we learn from Acts 10? We learn that God is sovereign in saving sinners, right? But we also learn that we are responsible to pray and to obey and share in that gospel. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you once again for this word that you've given us, this word of life. And we just thank you, Lord, that you'll put it on all of our hearts, Lord, to pray and to seek you and to see you move so that we can share that gospel of salvation to your people that are out there. We don't know who they are, Lord, but we just trust that you'll lead us to them and give us the words and the heart to speak to them and to bring them to you. And I just ask that you'll put that on our heart to do that, a desire to share your word, to share your gospel, 
and to save souls from perishing in hell and to give us the wisdom and the knowledge to do that. And I thank you, Lord, you'll do that for this church. And I ask, Father, that you'll protect all of us. A lot of us will be traveling. In time we spend in our family, I just ask that your hand will be on all of us, that it will be a, a joyful time and a time to thank you for all the many blessings that you've given us and our families and the children that have been birthed in this church and for all the things that you will do that we look forward to you doing in our midst. And we just thank you for all that, Lord, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.